0: hey chris what's up jason
1: man just early morning recording
0: yeah it feels like we recorded just two days ago we did (laughs) we're such we're such pros now i know it's uh what's this episode you said 30 32 32 man that's nuts
1: i thought we had given up by now and or people would just tell us to shut the blank up (laughs) Oh. well, so far, so good, though. Well, maybe they are saying that. We just don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Went> privately. privately. <laughs> um, so, as our kind of uh, recent, I don't even know the word I'm looking for. Like we've been doing lately, we have a guest today. Uh, Advi, do you mind saying hello and maybe giving kind of a brief introduction?
2: Huh. Oh, sure. Uh, hi, I'm Avdi Grimm, um, and I do developer education stuff. Um, Most notably probably is the Ruby Tapas screencast series and uh, some books and do some speaking at conferences
1: and stuff like that. Well, welcome on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So one question we kind of like to ask all our guests, um, how did you get started programming?
2: Uh, Well, um, programming was kind of in the air in my household uh, my dad my dad kind of straddled the line between uh hardware engineering and software engineering and while i did not learn programming from him it was just sort of like you know com- there were computers around which is always a big leg up and um you know and and, and that kind of made it uh, an obvious career choice um and uh I mean, I, I, remember taking some early stabs at learning to program. And then, then, uh, when I, in my, my brief stint at community college, I, I took a couple of programming courses and then I kind of, uh, through, through some good fortune, I sort of stumbled into a full-time programming job, um, at a defense contractor when I was 18 and, and kind of just kept going from there.
0: What kind of, uh, programming were you doing at the defense contractor?
2: Um uh, it was a lot of C C+ plus um, working in in embedded systems and um, networking middleware systems a lot of different architectures different types of of computers that it was running on um, also did a fair amount fair stint uh, working in like sixty eight thousand assembler and um, sorry assembly um, and uh, yeah stuff like that and then branched out a little bit into to various other things you know I've spent some time doing vb6 to crunch data from spread- spreadsheets and and learned Perl while i was there because i needed to crunch lots of data and i didn't feel like doing it in c and uh, yeah and eventually eventually like kind of explored all the scripting languages and it was in that process that i wound up really really liking uh ruby and and building some internal tools in ruby so were
1: you uh, doing Ruby when you're still at the? Yeah, desktop? internally, it was kind
2: of one of those things where where um, they're like, I need, you know, we need we need this tool to be updated to to work um, on our new hardware, and I was like, this tool is horrible, and half of the source code isn't even there, and we have to link it to to this like it, <laughs> this one golden um, uh, object file because the source code and the compiler is lost, and. And I was like, I don't want to extend this C. Why don't I just rewrite it in Ruby? And they're like, what's Ruby? I'm like, don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> uh,
2: what version well, of Ruby I don't is know. That? It was probably back in Did like you the 1.6-ish era. Um, 1.4, 1.6, something like that.
0: Wow, that's pretty uh, pretty early. I think my earliest was like 1.8.7 or yeah, something I'm around like, there. I'm in this uh,
2: generation of Ruby programmers for whom like the 1.8.7 changes are still sort of like, yay, those are so cool. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> yeah. when you talk about Ruby, this is, is this a Ruby show? This is a Ruby show, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we call, we call so, it remote Ruby. So I can actually geek out about Ruby movies. a little bit. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, to be perfectly honest, like Ruby as a language doesn't really change as much as other languages. Um, Like I want to say like 80 to 90% of the stuff that I use now was already um, was already in Ruby at that point.
0: Yeah. I was doing Python um, before I got into Ruby and I remember the, the sort of Python two to three thing, which apparently still is, an ongoing process for some projects. Um, I remember just like the the Ruby two transition was so much easier. It would just seemed like the community was happy to adopt all those features and stuff. But it didn't seem like it changed as significantly, um, which I thought was yeah. Cool. Well, I
2: think um, I mean some of that you can chalk up to to the I think the fundamental design of Ruby, which you know I mean there are there are aspects you know, Ruby is a big language in terms of syntax. Um, but the syntax changes relatively slowly. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the big, I think decision that was, that made a, made a difference early on was, was that like most of the language features would be library features, you know, like we're not going to have a whole lot of different iteration constructs built into the syntax. You know, we're not going to have, have syntactical, um, uh, what are they called? um, Uh not reductions. Uh what is that thing in Python? Um comprehensions. Um, you know, we're not gonna have have special syntax for that. It's just going, you know, if you need to do some kind of comprehension type type dealer, you're gonna chain together a bunch of innumerable operations. And you know, the like that kind of choice, making making almost everything ascend to an object um meant that, you know, if you wanted to add, you know, and then having the blocks be really convenient meant that if you wanted to add like a new control construct or something you know like recently we're, we, we've seen what is a yield self which is now being alias to then which is a really cool little construct but it's purely you know it's purely a method being added to objects it doesn't actually add any new syntax to the language and uh, you know it's that kind of thing which is sort of small talk inspired where like small talk and Lisp inspired where you know everything is is a method call and if you want to add a new construct to the language you just you're just adding a new method call and that makes things a lot easier than when you're constantly changing syntax.
1: Did you ever write a
2: Yeah, a little talk? bit? Um, I spent some time, you know, not, not, um, for work, but just in an effort to get more familiar with, with the roots of Ruby. Um, I spent some time learning Pharaoh small talk, which is a, a, a free small talk that you can go out and get. And it's quite nice.
1: I've always been curious about small talk because like I've only worked in Ruby and rails, but like a lot of what I consider like OG Ruby programmers reference small talk, like DHH talks about like one of his favorite books is a small yeah. talk book. Uh But I've never, I've never looked at it. So I am curious. Uh You said you were working for the defense contractor and now you have Ruby tapas. You work for yourself. What, uh, What kind of the what's the story between going from the defense contractor to? Um, It was basically
2: just a progression of getting small, like deliberately getting more and more independent over time. It's like smaller and more independent, you know. So it went. I I spent way too long in the defense contractor world, and after like eight or nine years, finally, um, I got fed up. I it it takes me way too long to get fed up for my own good, Um, and jumped to a smaller, much smaller company. It was about 50 employees, I think, uh, that was doing that had a, uh, actually had a very, very, some very, very large rails applications that had started in the pre 1.0 era. Um, and so I spent a couple of years there and, uh, they were, they were working on, on automations for, uh, for, uh, clinical, like clinical trials. And, um, then from there, I spent a, a year at a startup where I was like employee number one, um, you know, which, which did what most startups do, which is fizzle out. And, uh, and then after that, I jumped to consulting and um, spent a few years consulting and then, then kind of spent some time doing uh, what I call uh, pair programming consulting. So I would just like take appointments with people who wanted some coaching or some, you know, some an extra eyes on a piece of, um, a piece of code, which I still do. I, st- I still do some of that occasionally, um, call them rubber duck sessions. And, uh, then let's see. Yeah. And while I was doing that, I started, uh, publishing the Ruby Tapas videos and that gradually grew from, you know, being a side gig to, uh, being a full-time deal.
1: That's awesome uh, Chris I guess has a a similar path am I wrong on that Chris
0: yeah yeah it's you know the <clears throat> working for startups and then at some point realizing like you're you're investing a lot of effort and um, things tend to fizzle out so yeah I, I ended up going into consulting and then you know doing the same sort of screencasting mm-hmm. and things um, yeah it's it seems like a funny funnily similar path there
1: I've noticed uh, recently I think it's on Twitter you've been talking about you've been working on some JavaScript yeah. materials'm yeah, right? working
2: with uh, Betsy Habel, um on a uh, a course that, that she's developing uh, that's uh, it's all about like understanding the asynchronous features of JavaScript better and uh, I can, we can totally uh, come up with a, a link for that for your show notes.
1: Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'm, uh, I'm really curious about that. It, I, it also kind of piqued my interest too because you know mostly the material that I've read from you has been Ruby, and so I was kind of curious, you know, maybe what uh, if it was your project, what inspired you to work on it? But it sounds like I guess it's Betsy's project. It, and you're this helping is true. It, I mean, like she
2: her. she helped me out a lot with my. Um, my moon course, the uh, mastering the object oriented mindset in, in Ruby and, and rails <laughs> long title. Um, <laughs> uh, she helped me out a lot with that. She, we did a, a series of pair programming videos for that, which, um, which are actually still being published to that course. And, uh, and, and now I'm helping her out with the, the async JS course, but I mean, it's, um, it, it's also a deliberate direction for me. Uh, it's not just sort of, it's not just random. Um, you know, as, as a younger programmer, um, I think I spent a lot more time thinking about like, what is the best language and you know, what language do I want to be working in? I still really enjoy working in Ruby. Um, But these days um, I'm much more interested in leverage. um, What technologies have the most leverage and like, you know, I cannot, I'll be perfectly honest when, when I have meet friends out in the non-programming world and they're like, how do I get into programming? I absolutely cannot in good conscience, in good conscience say, start with Ruby. Um, you know, it's not that Ruby is a terrible language to learn in. It, it's not, it's a decent language to learn in. Um, and, but the problem, you know, and yes, you can learn in any programming language and then sort of transfer that into others. But if if you want like the fastest on ramp to the largest, the largest variety of programming jobs at this point, and, you know, just, just being able to, to like communicate with other programmers um that, place is now JavaScript I mean it used to be C um, and then for a while it was Java and now it's JavaScript JavaScript is is like this huge on-ramp at this point where there's so many people out there to help you um, and there's so much going on there and there are so many different you know there's front-end stuff and there's back end stuff and um, yeah it's just you know it's a ling- it's become a lingua franca and that's big. That's important. You know, network effects are important. And also JavaScript is grad, as a language is moving surprisingly fast and is, is doing a pretty good job of stamping out some of its gnarliest bits. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in like talking to the largest number of pro- programmers and also being able, you know, and being able to converse with them and uh, just being able to be useful to the, the, the largest number of programmers out there.
1: you touched on something I, I think about a lot and actually like, uh, I've talked to a couple other devs in Memphis about, uh, I recently had a friend who became a programmer and like he went the Ruby route, uh, and was, like, luckily able to find a job. But like, I struggled, like, I think like we're best friends. So I think part of his Ruby decision was maybe because like, that's what I do. But like I struggled to tell people like Ruby as a first language because it seems like, the majority of like jobs in like Ruby and rails that everybody's looking for like a senior level engineer and it feels like the junior level jobs in Ruby yeah, like, uh, aren't there.
2: I mean, maybe, that's maybe what that happens. Work, I mean, but. it's, you know, that's what happens when you have a maturing technology where, where a lot of the work is in, is in large existing code bases. And it's also, I mean, it's also what happens because we have a, we have a messed up industry that doesn't value um, uh, leveling people up in house, Nearly as much as it should.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, kind of, kind of talking about languages. I, I'm curious to get your thoughts because, I mean, you mentioned you made a a course on mastering yes. object-oriented programming, and right now, there's, you know, like functional programming is a pretty hot topic uh, for them, for some. And I I guess I see it a lot in Ruby because of Mm -hmm. Elixir. Um, And so, like, I'm curious because I actually, like, I really like some of the functional programming fundamentals, but I still, like, find myself using Ruby uh, and just trying to apply those to Ruby. But there are some people, not everyone, of course, but there are some people who, like, make this switch, like, doing functional programming full-time, and they, like, they disown OOP like it is... Uh, a horrible thing. Uh, I'm curious. your okay, thoughts. Okay. So on I'm going to piss some
2: people off here. Um, first off, Elixir isn't a functional programming language. Um, it's a much more object oriented programming language than Ruby. Um, if you want to, uh, if you want to have fun with, with functional programming, do it in a lisp, uh, do it in closure or do it in scheme um, or do it or go the opposite direction and do it in Haskell or Elm. If you want to have fun in like with like a really strong, strongly typed, programming language that won't let you make mistakes. Um, But uh, Elixir is not the way to have fun with functional programming. It totally is a way to do object oriented programming the way that Alan Kay intended. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, there I've, I think I've, I think I've uh, pissed off as many people as possible within a short number of sentences.
1: (laughs) I, I guess um, like when I think about like when when I hear people talk about like how OOP is bad, like it's really easy for me. I guess I'm really easy persuaded. It's really easy for me to be like, Oh yeah. Wow. That is really bad. But then like, I often like combat that thought with like, well, maybe I just don't really like understand OOP. Um, and I, I feel like I've read a couple of articles about like, and you kind of just hit like, do you think there's just a lot of like misconception around object? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah,
2: because I mean, for one thing it's, it's um, almost nobody has done it yet. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, I don't feel like I can speak to this the best, the, the, the the very best thing that I've seen written about this recently um, is, uh, is an answer that Alan Kay wrote actually very recently on Quora. Where somebody he's been very active on Quora recently, and and somebody asked like, "What is our our object oriented programming and functional programming in conflict?" And I think he's he's the most qualified to answer that question um, because you know not only is he the person that defined object oriented programming, but he did it in languages that were strongly based on Lisp, and you know so is he he really knows how to bring those, those two two worlds together. And the answer is no, they're not incompatible at all. Um, but, and he goes into some detail, um, over, over how, and basically he's saying that, you know, objects, objects are a higher level abstraction than functions and objects give you a kind of cellular breakdown of, of a program into components that can be in inter- in process or could be Easily factored out into a separate process or a separate machine altogether. They sort of give you this, you know, turtles all the way down idea of of little ag- little active agents that are that are acting on on streams of messages. And internally, you can implement those agents just as as Elixir and Erlang do. You, you can implement those agents in terms of stateless transforms on data. Um, and so, objects basically became become world lines of of their stable states. Um, objects are. Are, you could think of objects as um, functions plus history. Um, so objects, I think, are really fundamentally, um, you know, they're a way of working really well with messages, where, where messages is the, is the most important idea here. Um, and, and objects are basically, objects are a way of embracing the fact that state is real um, and that nothing that we do, nothing important we do exists without state and without history and without effects upon
1: the world. So I'm I'm curious now. I'm gonna I guess kind of shift gears a little bit. Um going back to you said you you know JavaScript is more of like a uh get it's more of a larger mm-hmm. community, uh a lot more jobs, a lot more a lot of things around JavaScript right now. Um do you see any other languages that you think are kind of becoming like that's where I'm looking for kind of trending towards the future of programming or it's a bad way to put it, but trending towards like more of the, the strength of JavaScript. I don't know.
2: Um, you know, building on, on JavaScript typescript has a lot of, of momentum going now. It seems to have, uh, captured them, the lion's share of the, like compile to JavaScript language energy. Um, so that's interesting. It's sort of, they've, they've taken a very pragmatic approach of, you know, we're not going to build a new language on top of JavaScript. We're just going to, to have a a totally compatible superset, um, that adds, adds some things that keep you safer. Um, so that's, that's an interesting, um, direction that I'm following. Um, I don't know, you know, there's still plenty of steam in the Java, um, ecosystem and, uh, and lots of stuff, interesting stuff, built on there, but uh, it's it's um, it's hard to it's hard to predict these things. It's hard to predict what's going to take off. I mean, Ruby never should have taken off the way it did. It's just that that um, DHH wrote wrote rails in it, and uh, that sort of made all the difference. Uh, so a lot of times, it's not you know very very few languages directly directly you know become popular because of their merits indirectly yes i mean the reason dh dhh wrote rails in ruby was because it was the most amenable to the kind of thing that he was trying to do but uh yeah um i don't know i think the next the next phase is something that we can't imagine yet that's generally true
1: that's fair. Uh, so also now I guess switching gears again, uh, I've noticed you've had some, some guest chefs quite Harvey a few, Thomas, yeah. quite, quite a few actually. Um, um great. How's that going?
2: <laughs> I really love doing it. It's, uh, it's, it's a really refreshing change to work on, uh, bringing somebody else's expertise to the fore instead of, instead of my own. And, um, Brings a lot of different perspectives to the show, and uh, gives me a chance to to do something that I really enjoy, which is like just working with people, uh, working with people to help them take something that they know and turn that into a narrative that connects with other people. So, yes, uh, that's awesome. And I'm I'm uh, often on the lookout for for new guests. So if there's something important that you have to say to ruby uh ruby developers uh whether it's directly about ruby or just about being a good programmer um i would be my i would be interested in talking to you
1: that's awesome uh i assume it's maybe this is a misconception do you find that it like frees up more time for you to do other yes and no
2: um it's there is more of my time that goes into it than is apparent. You know, I realized recently that that um, in talking to people at conferences, I realized that that some people were under, under the impression that you know, like guest chefs are basically just submitting their videos to me and then I'm publishing them, which nothing could be further from the truth. Um, we go through building a guest episode is a process that's scheduled out over a series of around eight weeks, and um, and involves multiple meetings with them to to like develop a a solid topic idea and then develop their script, um, with them and make sure that, you know, they have a great narrative arc to the script and that it fits in well with the rest of the content and does, you know, it doesn't have, like doesn't make reference reference to things that people won't, won't know what that reference is about. And, uh, just generally like make sure that it, it, it's up to, <laughs> up to my standards and, uh, yeah so it's it's a it's a long collaborative process uh of of development and hopefully the results are good
1: that's great uh so i haven't really announced it yet i probably will before this releases but you're coming back for a third year southeast ruby which me too i'm so excited for uh i love having you come to that conference do you have any more conferences uh, lined uh, let's up? Let's see. This is the one the where I have to figure you're out which at? ones
2: are are, are public.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Well, so I know, I know. I think I saw yes, you speaking uh, at a Nordic JavaScript JS.
2: Conference. Um, and um, yeah, Nordic JS in the fall. I forget exactly when it is, but it, yeah, in the fall. Um, that's going to be fun, and then. Um, and then what else I might always blank at this point uh, I believe I'm going to be actually this is sort of a late edition but I'm going to be at uh, Deliver Agile in, in Nashville Um, in just a few months um, I don't know if that's public yet
1: um Cool.
2: And yeah, I don't know. I'm having trouble remembering, remembering the other ones. I think, I think I've got one or two others coming down the pipe. Um, but, uh, my mind always
1: blanks. Yeah, no worries. Uh, do you, uh, oh, do much. you enjoy public speaking? Is that a thing? Cause it's like a, it's a thing I like to do, but like, I get like, Get crippled like before it's time to do it, and that has recently led to me like not submitting. Mm,
2: really? Ever. So, tell
1: me more about that. Yeah, so like uh, I have a wicked like anxiety disorder. Um, what well, I the oh, actual yeah. term is generalized anxiety disorder <laughs> uh, and obsessive compulsive disorder. So, like those two things together, and so like. I guess it was, what is it? It's 2019, 2017. Like I did both rails and Ruby and like got to do some other conferences. And I was like, it felt like a really like hot year for me. And then like last year I got to where I was like mm-hmm. afraid of rejection. <laughs> so I just stopped submitting. Like it just like, uh, I, I helped review a friend's like rails comp proposal a few weeks ago or hour long. And I was like, Oh, I should submit and like pulled it up and like looked at all the topics. I was like, Oh, I could like write. A proposal for like this and this and this. And then I was like, no, I can't do this. Like, <clears> and I just shut down. So. Just yeah. That's, that's rough. I, work on. I know
2: there's, there is a lot of anxiety associated with speaking. Um, I still get a little nervous, especially like, um, uh, so this, this last uh, November I did uh, a series of talks. Uh, I, I, I went on a, conference tour called Yao, which is a, a three-city tour in australia um and that was it was sort of a bigger a bigger event than i'd ever done before um and yeah i was really really nervous it was a new crowd for me and didn't know how they would you know take the stuff that i had and honestly my my first talk i really didn't do that well um partly because of all the anxiety so it's it's an ongoing struggle.
1: That there were also some like pretty oh, yeah. big names on that. Yeah, well I mean right? it was,
2: you know, keynoted by um among other folks, um Kent Beck and Jessica Kerr and um uh yeah, Chad Fowler was there and uh, a lot room. of a lot a lot of good folks.
0: Um what so for anybody that, you know, is new to, to giving conference talks, Just what advice it. would you give those people? <laughs>
2: um, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, there's, there's, there's so many things to say about it and I, I'm never sure like what's the most important advice. Um, you know, I think for me, for me with my own particular set of, of neuroses is, um, don't worry about too much of the advice. Like there are a lot of blog posts and talks out there about doing better talks and I always found those incredibly intimidating as a young speaker. Like the idea that I have to be good at my like you know, I need to like have my my slides be really like high quality according to like how this like this one speaker says that I sh- my slides should be good. And my, um, you know, my delivery should be really good according to how this other speaker says, and my transition should be really good. And, um, you know, I should have a good narrative arc and I should have something funny and, 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 you know, I just found a lot of that stuff incredibly intimidating. Um, and one of the things that was important to me was just giving myself permission to suck on like every single axis, except one, like pick one axis to be good on at a time, you know? So like my first talks, it was like, I knew that I had some solid and novel technical material. Um, and that was it. Everything else was terrible. My delivery was terrible. My slides were terrible. My narrative arc was terrible. Um, I wasn't funny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, I had some good technical material that doesn't have to be the thing that you're good at. You know, I mean, you could, you could, you know, your first thing to focus on could be being funny and, and the heck with all the rest. Um, but yeah, like that's for newer speakers. That's like, other than that, other than, then other than just focus on one thing at a time, um, for God's sake, submit to lots of conferences. Some of them are going to accept your stuff, but if you just like, like hang all of your expectations on a single conference that you submitted to, um, then like that rejection is going to be your one experience of submitting, Um, you know, and, and, you know, chances are that one, your one first submission to one conference is going to be rejected because I mean, you know, it's just probability. So um, submit far and wide. Uh, and and also speak at users groups and just like get used to making lots of submissions and get used to getting a few you know a lot of rejections and a few acceptances out of that.
0: That's really good, good advice. I like the you know focus on doing one thing well because um, yeah, if you if you read those articles of, you know, worrying about being funny and having a narrative forget, and everything. Like, like, don't forget like don't forget like your how you stand loud. on the
2: stage and how you use your arms and <laughs> it's endless like there is there is no end to <laughs> yeah. what you can perfect uh and you know it gets better with time and you get like as you sort of nail down one aspect it frees up space mental space to focus on other aspects but but don't worry about it at first
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I that advice applies to, you know, I think a lot of programmers try and do things, you, you want to do it right the first time. And uh, there's just so many things to worry about that uh, you just have to like start small and like, number one, make it work. Then you can go and, and think about, did you name your variables well, you know, and so on. I, I used to spend so much wasted better. time
2: on like, I'm going to pick the best language. And I'm going to like, and I'm going to like, then I'm going to read a bunch of reviews of the different web frameworks that are associated with this language. And I'm going to pick the best one with the best features um, as my first, you know, to write my first app in, you know, and of course what I would always wind up doing is, is picking some obscure thing that sounded like it improved on all the others. Um, You know, cause obviously I didn't want to start like behind on something that was old and busted, you know? And so I'd pick something obscure and it would be something that nobody could help me with. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a similar thing. Uh, Um, it's a little different, but it's just like, don't worry about, about optimizing all the different aspects of, of anything, uh, at, at the beginning, just like jump in and worry about one thing at a time.
1: I know we're like talking about conference stocks, but before we started this, Chris and I were just talking about something similar to this. Cause like I'm working on a side project and it's like a rails app, but I like, I use the term like I just, I freeze a lot because I'm so worried about like trying to make the best decision like ahead of time on like a side project that may never even like make any money. And so like, I'm like worried about like, how I organize, like, should this be a service object? And like, well, what should I use to build that? Like, uh, and that actually recently, that same question brought me to, uh, an article you had written. I just like Googled like service objects. Uh, and one of your articles, like completely changed my mind on that, which is an aside, but yeah, I'm, I, I'm so worried about over. Yeah, I mean, that I never and like
2: so many of the, so much of the stuff that's, that's written out there, is written from the perspective of of somebody who had a colossal hairball of a problem. You know, I mean, a, a, our industry is badly infected with the the syndrome of, like, if Google does it this way, then we should go do it this way. Well, no, you shouldn't. Google is huge, and their code bases are huge, and their problems are different from yours. Like, that is not an argument that makes any sense. And then the same goes for, you know, Facebook or Amazon or anybody. Um and, you know, so you have all these like, like best practice publications that come out of these companies and, and they have nothing to do with your context. And, you know, like the, I know which article you're talking about is the one where I, where I slag on service objects and say that we should be representing, um, we should be representing processes, you know, workflows, uh, as objects rather than individual transactions. And I stand by that. And I've, I've been giving talks about that, but at the same time, um, if your app is a to-do list you don't have a lot of workflows in your app and honestly you can probably get away with just throwing all of your your logic in your controllers in your rails controllers and be done with it like don't you know don't apply you don't have to apply a practice from the very beginning i guess and a lot of times that's just counterproductive um, you know, if there's some practice that's, that was, that was extracted out of organizing large quantities of code. Um, if you don't have large quantities of code, then that's not the thing to be worrying about at that, at that point.
1: Yeah. And like one of the things I think Chris brought up was like, if it does continue to grow, like those things can be refactored like into yeah. Get better at patterns and processes yeah. if
0: you actually need. Yeah. It's, it's always the thing that people forget is like, it's just a process. Like you can always change things at any time. In fact, software is one of the easiest things to change. So, you know, like you don't have to do it perfectly the first time, but you always, you always like have this dream of what you want to build and accomplish. And you're like, Oh, I'm going to make the best, whatever, possible and then you just it's it's very easy as humans for us to forget about the complexity of things or all those little weird edge cases we have to deal with and that's really where we get bogged down on um and it's just you know the ideal is just to embrace those things as they come up and then you know think about them and just kind of work knowing that those things are going to happen instead of yeah. trying to do it perfect yeah first time. Um-
2: uh, my friend Jessica Kara likes to talk about semathesis, which is like um, you know your your software project should be um, it should be a system which is composed of both technical like composed of it's a socio technical system it's it's composed of people and technical technical parts and the aim of the system should be constant learning the aim of the system is you know hopefully you know. Th- good things, useful things, useful product will fall out of that. But the aim of the system um, of the socio-technical system is constant learning. And I think that's, I think that's a better orientation than, um, than on like turning out the, the, the perfect product made of the perfect parts.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you know, I mean, how many times has, uh, your product changed once you get it out to customers? Like the first time you build it, you assume a bunch of stuff, then people ask for other things and you're like, oh, we have to change that. And so really it's always coming down to, you know, it needs to continuously evolve. There's just what's right for Um, right now. And that, yeah. And, and like you were saying, like, um. You know, I always find this interesting. And one of the reasons why Ruby is so great, in my opinion, is like, you know, we're writing code almost uh, for humans Mm -hmm. more than we are for computers, in a sense, because it's very readable for us, which is like, you know, computers don't really have too much trouble um, interpreting our code anymore, but humans really struggle with that sometimes. And so in the future, I imagine we'll just have things that, feel more and more natural um, for humans to understand. But, uh, you know, that, that's that been one of the things we're finally getting towards instead of, you know, dealing with a whole lot of memory allocations and, and worrying about the little details as, as humans, we can think about the higher level Absolutely. concepts when we code Absolutely. now. And something, something to keep in mind there,
2: I think, is, um, is it's not just about being able to to comprehend. It's not just about being able to read the intent of code really well. Um, we, I think a lot of times, you know, that that has been a, a strong emphasis in the Ruby world, and it's great. Uh, but a lot of times we stop at, you know, you should be able to read the code and understand it. Um, and this is another of those things that, that Jessica and I have been talking about a lot lately, and I've been, like, tweeting about it a little bit, is, is um, it goes beyond yeah it goes beyond that static readability. Uh, the important thing is comprehensibility, the ability to to understand the system not just as it is and it's you know as it is in code, but also as it runs. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that's worth focusing on there involving like you know at, at the most basic level, decent logging. Um, you know, and then you can get into things like structured logging and stuff like that. Um, but also um, looking at how you handle failures, how you handle errors. Um, whether you're doing error messages or whether you're doing, um, help, (laughs) helpful support messages. Um, you know, one of the, I was, I was listing on Twitter the other day, like some of the the sort of values that I I try to optimize for these days. And one of the things I said was, was, uh, um, communication over, see, how did I put it? Communication over correctness. Like I would much rather have a system that fails but in the process tells me what it was trying to do than a system that is, you know, perfectly correct, but inscrutable.
0: Yeah, that's really, really good. Um, Cause it comes down to not like, we don't exactly care what the code is specifically doing. We care about what it is intended to do. And that that surfaces in your errors and everything. Um and, and yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I like that wording of it. It makes a lot of a lot of sense in the real goal that you're going after. I think speaking
1: of a tweet like you sent literally right before that one. Uh you said things I'm no longer interested in optimizing for and one of those was simplicity. Yeah. Would you <laughs> mind explaining that simplicity one?
2: Simplicity is such yeah. a ridiculous um area of focus, uh, for, for, uh, developers. I think we, we hold it up as this holy grail and, and it's completely unachievable. Um, so one of the people that I've been following lately, well, one of the the movements that I've been following lately is the resilience engineering community. And, uh, and one of the people who's like sort of at the center of that is John Allspaw. you know, and, and he's got some, some talks out there where he t- talks about how, um, complexity is inherent to value like complexity. If if it's inherent to success, if your system is successful, um, it's going to acquire complexity. And if you're, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, making your system complex is going to make it successful, but, um, but this is just successful systems, um, are complex systems. It's, it's part and parcel and, you know, anytime, anytime you run across somebody who says that they're going to make your system, si- they're going to make your system simpler, um, with some tool or something, um, <laughs> never trust that, you know, they are, this is, this is snake oil. Um, you know, I, you know, I think a lot of people sincerely believe that they're making things simpler, but the, you know, the, the thing about complexity is that you never get rid of it. You just push it around. Um, you know, it's like bubbles under, under, under plastic. And yeah, so, yeah, I'm not interested in in optimizing for for simplicity. I'm interested in um, in value. You know, I think that was that was the way that I put it in the in the the, the later tweet was value over over simplicity. Um, I'd much much rather we have we have a learning a learning system. You know, a a that's that's mature in working with complexity than um, than try for false ideals of simplicity you know like the whole like you know we're going to make really really simple microservices okay but then you know your network of microservices is going to be complex and that's fine it's fine to have a network of microservices that's complex but don't don't mistake that from simplicity um and make sure that you have make sure that, that you develop some kind of competence in understanding the interactions and of making those interactions between microservices comprehensible um you know using using logging using Um, a good, you know, universal message bus that, where you can trace out what the heck happened and, and
1: replay it and stuff like that. That, excuse me. So that actually like really hits home for me because like, uh, one of the things I like, don't tell people this a lot, but like, I really like and big into the idea of like minimalism as like a concept Mm. of like just my personal life, not necessarily programming, like kind of out of that, I was like, Oh, well, like maybe there's like, maybe I'm just making like coding too complex. Like I need to make it simpler. And so that became like my like pitchfork. Right. Uh, but the thing like I've come to terms with the last like three or four months is that most of the times, like my idea of like trying to make things simpler, honestly just like ends up making it more complex and like uh I keep like trying to strip down things to their simplest point, but then like there's mm-hmm. so many levels of like indirection Uh and it just like, it's hard for me to follow. I can't imagine someone else coming up behind me and trying to like follow where all these, yeah, like, well, I mean, and this, this is the thing, like, so, you know, when yeah.
2: usually when people talk about making things simpler, usually they have, some proxy you know simple simpler is a proxy for some other value like you know for a go programmer making things simpler is removing indirection and making it and making things like more um uh more verbose but but saying but you know doing more things obviously rather than implicitly you know for a typical ruby programmer it's the opposite direction simplicity they often mean by simplicity they often mean abstraction they often mean indirection uh so that um you have less going on in any individual point in the program, um, but then the 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 execution sort of wends its way through through lots of small bits instead of one big bit. You know, those are both things that have been held up as simplicity over the years. And neither of them is simplicity. They're just different, you know, different styles of organization.
1: Yeah, that that hit ho- hits home so well. Um, before we, we wrap up, uh, so one, one of the things I really appreciate and admire is kind of how honest you are on social media. Like it's one of like my big qualms with social media is like, we always like put the best forward mm-hmm. uh and then everybody like thinks their life sucks. Um, so I am curious, um, like you've talked about some of the things you like enjoy doing, but I just like to hear like, what do you like to do for fun when you're not programming? Like what?
2: Um, I mean the biggest thing is dancing. Um, I try to take myself out dancing as often as possible. Um, I go to electronic music, music clubs and, and nights and, um, uh, dance my head off. Um, so that's like number one. um, I like to hike too. Hiking is nice. I live out in the woods. And uh, so I get a nice, you know, a, a nice kind of combination of, of, uh, you know, uh, fun with other people and then fun out and out in the middle of nowhere with, with quiet and woods and squirrels. Um, yeah, those are big ones. I also really like just like going out to cool little, um, you know, brew pubs and having locally, Local, um, beers and stuff like that, or fancy cocktails. Um, total, I'm a total fan of that kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, hanging out with, you know, something that I've, I've emphasized a lot over the past year. Um, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty open on social media. And so, you know, I don't make any, I, I don't hide the fact that, um, over the past two years, my life kind of completely fell apart and, uh, and got put together again in a very different configuration. And, um, uh, part of the fallout from that was deciding to uh, put a lot more energy into just being with making friends and being with friends. And uh, so I, I try to uh, spend a lot more time, uh, you know, meeting people for lunch and uh, being out and about in a, in a way that I can I can be with friends and family.
1: I can imagine that like working for yourself in the woods uh, finding friends yeah. to like get out with would be very valuable because I live like in the city and I work from home and I still get lonely. So, well, uh Chris, any other questions?
0: Uh, you're curious about? I think that's it. Well, thanks for coming was, on. It was, my was pleasure. really fun talking to you, Abdi. And, um, looking forward to seeing you at southeast ruby again are uh any any kind of um, i mean my, my you like, you know, you know, follow me
2: on twitter avdi place. uh avdi on twitter um i've got a website like my main it's not really up to date or anything but my main um like programmer presence website is avdi.codes and uh yeah you can kind of find stuff from there rubytapas.com rubytapas.com is the uh is where I make all my videos and you can subscribe for monies and support my, my way of life <laughs> out here in the woods typing away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, those are the big ones I think.
1: Great. Well, like Chris said, thanks so much for joining us. It, uh, I really, I really appreciate you, and I'm glad that like through Southeast Review, I've got to like know you. And I think like, I think as uh, as a community and like an industry, you make it better. So thank you. All right, Chris. Well, at this rate, we'll probably record another episode tomorrow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it'll be a it'll be a crazy week. All right, talk to you soon. See ya.